on that kind of uh, on that kind of question of solutions, it'll be kind of interesting to kind of discuss how the Morrison government has responded to this, mm. uh, because there was an interesting kind of announcement that was put forward kind of yesterday. Yes, it has been um, fairly typical of the Morrison's Morrison government's disaster response recently. But on the the issue of uh, climate change and particularly people's response to it, we're kind of looking at an article from. Uh, ABC News, uh, New South Wales, Queensland floods on track to be among the country's worst ever natural disasters, the Climate Council says. And one of the things that uh, they point out in this article is that it can take years of study to prove definitively that these sorts of events are directly linked to climate change. But it's also pretty clear in some ways. It's one of those things that um, is... A problem is a bit of a stretch, but it's one of those things that's that can be an issue when it comes to discussing uh, climate science and the effects of climate change on weather patterns and stuff like that, is that a lot of these things can take years to prove definitively, and that really can give governments like the Morrison government or other generally right-leaning, climate-denying or kind of climate-ignoring governments this big window of opportunity where they can say, oh, well, it hasn't been definitively proven that it was to do with climate change or whatever <clears throat> but yeah and i guess one of the there's a there's been a kind of number of interesting announcements actually mm. from the morrison government response so one of the first kind of announcements was morrison has um, fi- um finally in fact you could probably just say yeah. finally declared a state of emergency in mm. response to kind of these floods now what that kind of means is it actually kind of means that the federal government is actually able to greater intervene in the day-to-day um, mm. in involvement of this vote, including giving certain infrastructural kind of support and logistical support. Uh, and in fact, yeah. it also gives them the ability to be able to mobilise uh, the military in response to this disaster. Mm. And in fact, that is what the government is um, actually doing, in, in a sense. Um, the ADF is being mobilised. But I actually have... There's actually an issue to kind of raise with this, and it's it goes hand-in-hand mm. hand with one of the announcements that the federal government announced yesterday, which was basically, in the context there... Uh, um, at the in the press conference, and um, they basically they start off basically making this sort of big announcement in kind of response to the fact that you know we're having these extreme yeah. floods, and of course we've got the whole war in Ukraine, the threat of Russia and China. <laughs> uh, the Australian government basically announced that they're going to be you know have a bit bit of a mass, massive a massive increase in spending for of of expanding ADF personnel, and actually yeah. essentially it was basically an announcement that they're going to they're committing to to increase military spending. In fact. The ALP has actually responded to that by saying, we are going to be the party that will spend even more on defence than uh, the Liberals. That's, uh, it's such a pointless thing to do for us. We are not threatened by Russia. We're not threatened by China, not militarily at least. And it comes after, like, days of the Morrison government really just trying their best to deflect any kind of responsibility and trying to make it out that, oh, the federal government's job isn't actually to help people or whatever. Because there were there's, were announcements or comments by Morrison and Dutton, and um, I've forgotten his name now, but I think it was the the chief of um, New South Wales Security or something. I'm sorry, I'm not sure about that. But there have been various announcements about how it's not their responsibility. Peter Dutton or whoever set up, like, a GoFundMe and 
people have been setting up GoFundMes to try and buy helicopters to actually rescue people and stuff like that. And this, it is also worth mentioning that the announcement of the state of disaster, this this uh, move by Morrison to so that the federal government can intervene more, comes after backlash to those sorts of comments as well. He might, you know, say, oh, it's about the floods or whatever, but it's really more about the backlash that he really should have expected by trying to deflect responsibility and then deciding to take it, use this opportunity to to kind of bang the war drums, so to speak, to try and hit this sort of jingoistic kind of, um, you know, security threat sort of idea. Like, again, like we need more personnel in the ADF to deal with Russia or China who don't particularly have any we don't particularly have any reason to think that they actually pose any kind of military threat and it's as far as i'm aware we're not sending personnel to ukraine mm. to well, fight the, Russia well the, anyway. the irony about that is um the mm. there's a certain pressure on the government here because basically they they know that sending troops or involving ourselves directly in war would be very unpopular with the, yeah. the kind of general kind of population. So in a sense, what the government is intentionally doing with some of these announcements is they're basically, they're essentially wanting, like any sort of capitalist kind of country, they're wanting to push this kind of whole message of militarism. Hmm. And in fact, they're wanting to use the the whole comp, um the whole war in Ukraine that's occurring right now tragically as a pretense to actually increase militarism to mm. actually um bring uh, in kind of more um drive up more nationalism yeah and actually to actually in a sense prepare the population for some kind of war at some point because as as mm. there's obviously those existing kind of tensions with Australia and China despite the fact that obviously as you as you kind of say they you know there's no there's no mil- there's no immediate military threat from China right now you know there's mm. no plans from China to um to encircle our country I've, well, actually, wait. That's that's the other side. That's us. <laughs> um, so yeah. you can you can kind of you can kind of see. And in fact, yeah. And in in fact, actually, one of the kind of big ironies is if is if China were acting in a way that was actually proportional to how we have been acting, how us and the Western powers have been acting towards China, mm. then you know probably would be hearing this um the war drums about how we how it's justified to defend uh to to invade China or to start a war because we had to yeah. defend our national security and our borders. Yeah, exactly. If China were responding the way we're responding, we'd be seeing what's happening in Ukraine but somewhere else. Like that's the sort of thing that happens when the the this I mean, obviously, as we've said, we do condemn the war in Ukraine, obviously, but and particularly Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But there is something to be said for the fact that it is a response to NATO doing what we're doing now. It's a response to NATO's kind of unnecessarily unnecessary militarism. And it's obviously not a good response. It's obviously a condemnable response. But this sort of thing has started to appear to have consequences, but it doesn't really seem like anybody's heeding that warning, so to speak, because ultimately there have been a lot of uh, 
beneficial results out of um, the invasion of Ukraine in terms of countries wanting to join the EU or NATO that previously didn't have interest in that sort of thing. Mm. So, and I want to go actually take it away back. Actually, take this. Um, I want to. I guess a few final points. I guess I want to kind of make in terms of this discussion. I guess on the floods is. Yeah. I don't think we. Um, yeah, all, all these kind of issues are kind of connected, and probably one of the more important things is the impact that this has had on on people who are impacted by a flood. So basically yeah. it's being reported that there has been more than 400,000 claims to service Australia have have been processed for, um, by victims mm. of of the uh, of the floods and 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 it's resulted in 480 million of emergency financial support. But on the other hand, there are actually kind of reports that people there are some people who are not um, actually getting access to um, to the emergency payments, and I think yeah. that's that's an outrage. In fact, even just one person um, not being able to access um, access any sort of special support in terms of them being uh, if following their they're being impacted by the flood, I think is unacceptable. And mm. I, I think it also falls line in line with this trend that the government has been doing is that the government just doesn't know how to respond to any sort of natural disaster. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it is a, whether it is a, whether starting from the bushfires in 2020, uh, to setting, um, from the COVID-19 pandemic mm. to now this, it's like the government clearly cannot respond in any, in an adequate way. Uh, to natural disasters that actually serves the interests of ordinary people. Yeah, exactly. Because to, you know, divert slightly back into the military thing, an increase in military spending is not actually useful to any of the people who have been impacted by the floods or even the people who are still unable to um, get access or benefit from this supposed fund that was set up after the 2020 bushfires. It's the sort of thing that we see consistently over and over again with the Morrison government that even when they do when they are forced to look like they're taking action they don't actually take action in a way that benefits the people who are affected like you said so so in this case you have increased military sp- spending which doesn't help anyone or you know back in 2020 you had that big fund that was supposedly set up to help rebuild and all that sort of stuff that has never that as far as i'm aware still not a cent of it has ever been used to actually help anyone from this big fund and so you see these sorts of responses and i think the thing about the the increased military spend, spending that it sticks out to me is it kind of it's one of those things it makes me worry that we're i mean we are but it makes me worry that we're heading more toward a sort of us style of um government right where they have there's this constant claim in the US and we get it here in Australia too but there's this constant claim in the US that they don't have the money to spend on you know universal healthcare or even a healthcare system similar to ours or various infrastructure or all these things but you see them every year increase this already ridiculously inflated military budget and then they claim that they don't have the funds to do various other things and it's sort of it feels like a step in that direction almost having the the response to the floods be let's increase the military budget as opposed to and when you have examples of people being unable to access emergency funds already and it's 
I don't, you know, I don't always want to be a pessimist, but I expect that we'll see just the same thing that we saw after the 2020 bushfires, which was there's a little bit done possibly by the states, but but the federal government funding that goes that supposedly goes toward it never actually is seen by anyone. Mm. Well, I think um, 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 I think we'll 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 take um, we'll go and move on to another um, discussion after po- probably following an announcement. I guess the last kind of thing I just want to kind of say is. I think it's really characteristic of how the government does respond in emergencies. Mm. They basically, you know, they accept it as like it's a once in a lifetime event. And then as soon yeah. as it's over, they just wash their hands of it. And in fact, that has, that was the experience of, that has been the experience of the government um, yeah. when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, because really, very much, you know, Every t- it was almost like the government was only willing to act when they get into a disaster, mm. but then they have never been willing to act during good times. Like for a fun fact, yeah. you know, hospitalizations and you know the COVID situation has actually calmed down significantly, and you know hospitalizations way down, um, case is a not as wide in the community. And you know what are we hearing from the federal government? We're probably hearing nothing. You know they're not doing anything in response to actually prepare for any sort of future variants or any disasters. There's no talk about investing in healthcare. And I think yeah, yeah we're just going to see the same thing in response to these um to these to this natural, this disaster. Yeah, for sure. All right, so we'll just go to a quick announcement and then we'll be back with some more discussion of the news. You're listening to 3CR and Green Left Radio. Angry at paying the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care, less police powers, a safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers' Solidarity and rally organisers are 3CR supporters. And we're back. Uh, You're listening to 3CR, um, Green Left Radio, 855 AM and greenleft.org.au. And yes, we're back with a bit more discussion of... Slightly less pressing news, I suppose. Hmm. Um, and we're going to start with some, we're going to have some articles from Green Left, and we're going to start with one that is uh, written by Sue Bolton. Uh, Wages at an all-time low means unions will have to break unjust laws. And I think you helped with this article a bit, didn't you, Jacob? Yeah. So just to um, start a bit of a discussion, drawing on some of the important kind of points from this article, basically we've gone... I guess the kind of context that we have to sort of come through is that we've got, we've gone through two years of a global pandemic and then what we're kind of finding, what has been observed is wage growth for workers is at an all-time low, but at the same time, and I'm sure lots of people who are listening are actually feeling this very concretely, the cost of living uh, for ordinary people is steadily increasing. Mm. And this draws on some of the, some of the statistics from the Australian Bureau said that on February 23rd that wages have only grown by 2.3% over the past year, which is compared with previous decades where nominally wages grew by 25% or more a year. I think that's 2.5% or yeah, more yeah, a year. Yeah, yeah. So, and then 
the situation, I guess, worsens, worsens when you take into account that prices for a lot of consumables, um, i.e. essential kind of goods that you kind of need to live, have risen um, by uh, 3.5% over this, that same period. Now, we've, but more specifically, you've had things like fuel, housing and transport costs have increased by 324 217 and 12.5% respectively. And then vegetable, beef, childcare and medical costs have risen from 4.2% to 8%. And I guess what this kind of creates, the situation, and to, um, to explain the situation a bit, nominal, basically wage increases are not keeping up with with inflation and of course what how um how generally how inflation kind of works is basically it's generally that um essentially what this kind of means is that the same amount of your the value of your kind of dollar actually kind of decreases kind of over time and so wage increases are supposed to sort of keep up with that otherwise you know you get otherwise you can't look like basically mm. for example if you imagine a situation where if you gave everyone ten thousand to a hundred thousand dollars, that would probably negatively impact on the economy because it would basically create the um, conditions for inflation. And essentially, what that kind of means is that is that the same the the cost of what you could have bought with like a hundred dollars is not the same um, today as what you what you previously were able to buy with a hundred dollars. And I think that mm. is the squeeze that I think people are kind of facing. Yeah. And I guess the other issue as well is um, from the perspective of the capitalists, you know, the Reserve Bank of Australia basically said that, you know, wages will probably remain stagnant and households can expect inflation to outstrip wages until at least the end of the, this year. And then the, you have economists saying that the, um, that the impact of the Omicron variant of COVID-19 will slow wage growth even more. But at the same time, corporate profits are soaring by more than 13% um, last year. Mm. And a lot of this also, in terms of like how we can kind of respond to this, you know, there is a need that the union movement needs to kind of step up. Now they have um, the ACTU has kind of rightfully kind of condemned this, um, condemned these this um, this level of wage stagnation, and that you know any recovery from this pandemic actually relies on real wage growth. But of course, there's no, there hasn't been necessarily any campaign being launched for wage growth, and then. The federal government is essentially refusing to address the cost of living pressures and wage stagnation because while you you know you have the federal treasurer acknowledge um, that um, acknowledge these pressures, he essentially just said that on Twitter that these these um, these pressures are going to be just be addressed by tax cuts, <laughs> which tax cuts for the rich cannot really compensate for the losses in overall income due to wage stagnation. Um, like at the end of the day, yes. Some of these tax cuts might give like some extra spending money to, you know, maybe a, a, a low, a middle to high income, um, family. But for most part, if you're like a casual worker, um, you work in hospitality or if you, or if you earn less than $30,000 a year, well, you're, you're probably not going to get any benefit from these tax cuts. Mm. But at the same time, while you were probably previously able to live quite sensibly with $30,000 a year, you know, living in a share house, et cetera, with these increased sort of loss costs of living sort of pressures, that actually is becoming increasingly harder for the people in those situations. And yeah. the solutions for the, um, from the government is not actually addressing that. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and of course, yeah, and of course, a lot of these tax cuts are also just going to be paid for by cuts to services and welfare. Mm. And then the last kind of point is, you know, the government is having this sort of, just like they're sort of having with, um, with the natural kind of disasters, um, I think the government just has this sort of optimistic approach that things are just going to work out. Um, <laughs> nothing, um, and what they're citing is they're essentially citing the fact that, oh, well, we've had some of the highest GDP um, gross domestic product growth in the in the past year, and that we're leading the way um, in terms of a kind of post kind of COVID nineteen sort of recovery compared to other parts of the world. So because growth is sort of naturally kind of going to occur, <laughs> then yeah, um, then wages are probably yeah wages are naturally going to increase over time. Yes, but uh, to be clear, the federal government is not going to help wages rise, and probably if they can do anything about it, try and keep them stagnant. Because it is worth mentioning quickly, because we um, have an interview coming up, it is worth mentioning quickly that the problem with wage stagnation is that, sure, company profits are up, but the less and less people can afford to buy, the less profits will be able to increase or even hold steady, because nobody will be able to afford these products that have been generating profit. I mean, there are some things that people can't go without, obviously, but... People will work to get cheaper and cheaper options and drop profits and then will drop GDP and then the government will insist on more tax cuts for the rich, which don't actually help the economy grow because the rich don't spend their extra money, do they? But um, aside from that, uh, I think we might need to move on because, we, like I said, we do have an interview coming up. So I will play quickly a song. Um, while we get our interviewee on the line, you are listening to Green Left Radio on uh, 3CR 855 AM. And the song I'm going to play is The Change Is A Change Is Gonna Come by Kutcher Edwards. I was born by the river in a little tent, just like the river I've been running ever since. Been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard to live, but I'm afraid to die. Cause I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. Been a long, long time coming, but I know change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. I go to the movies and I go downtown. Somebody keep telling me, don't hang around. Say, brother, help me, please. But he winds up knocking me 
couldn't last for long But now I think I'm able to carry on You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, we are joined by Renfrey Clark. Renfrey Clark is a historian who's been the Green Left correspondent for Moscow throughout the 1990s and has written extensively on Ukraine's economy and politics and has also written a book on the history of Ukraine. Uh, we're having on, him on our program today to have a discussion about politics of Ukraine and how some of its historical context informs and contextualizes the events that are happening today, including the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, hello, Renfrey. Good to be with you. <laughs> welcome, welcome. So uh, I'll start off uh, with a kind of broad question. Uh, so what can you tell us about some of the history of Ukraine, beginning from its formation as an independent state following the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991? And what are some of its characteristics, the, the, this new state of Ukraine? Well, uh, Ukraine at the end of the Soviet period was one of the most developed and technically advanced of the Soviet republics. It was the one that, in the opinion of a noted German bank, uh, had the best chance of prosperity as an independent country after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Its history since then has been catastrophic. Um, today, Ukraine is um, 
States to the Soviet Union. Gross domestic product per capita in Ukraine is now about the equivalent of Guatemala. So from being part of the developed world, it's become part of the underdeveloped world very much. Now, what went wrong? Well, Ukraine always did have certain problems in the respect, in, in this respect, that um, its various regions had quite distinct histories and traditions. In the West, you had a tradition of uh, um, closeness to Europe. It was part of the Soviet Union only for um, a few decades throughout history. Um, in the East, it was extensively Russified. Um, it had traditions of uh, subjugation, first to, to the um, Russian imperial state, and after that, a long history as part of the Soviet Union. So they're quite different historical and political traditions in various parts of the country. As well, this is a country, something like Canada, in the respect that you don't have the same language spoken throughout the national territory. Um, in Western Ukraine, the language is Ukrainian, which is close to Russian, but definitely a, a distinct language. About half the population, including the capital, Kiev, um, were traditionally speakers of Russian, and this was particularly notable in the eastern uh, in the eastern provinces of Ukraine. So strong um, differences between different regions. Now, it becomes independent, and you find those tensions within the country eventually coming to the fore, though not 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 immediately acute. Um, but the, the critical thing in Ukraine during its, its post, post-Soviet history is the application by successive governments in Kiev of economic policies that were totally unsuited to the country and its situation, um, largely under the advice, if not dictation, of Western advisers. You have to remember that this had been part of the Soviet Union. It had an economy that had been designed to be planned, you couldn't simply privatise it, try to make it capitalist, when you didn't have the institutions of capitalism or the mechanisms that make capitalism work and that in the rest of the capitalist world had been developed over centuries. They simply did not exist. And what you had instead was the old Soviet-era Soviet elite ruling in very much the same fashion as it had done before, extremely corrupt, arbitrary, uh, power concentrated in very few hands. Um, and when you combine that with a lack of, of effective capitalist institutions, that was a recipe for disaster. Now, you can make certain comparisons here. One of them is with Belarus on the on Ukraine's northern border, where the strategy followed was quite different. You didn't have precipitate, um, national, uh, precipitate uh, privatizations. Uh, what you had instead was maintaining state, state control over the main industries at the same, same time as privatization was introduced lower down. That worked reasonably well. In Ukraine, you had the opposite. You had a highly ideological 
approach to the whole question. We are going to be as capitalist as we can, as rapidly as we can. And the result was that in the course of the 1990s, Ukraine lost about 60% of its gross domestic product. The size of the economy was more than halved. There's no parallel for this anywhere in the peacetime world, as far as I can work out, for a country to undergo a depression as severe and as, and as prolonged as this. In, in Russia, things were pretty bad. You lost nearly 50% of gross domestic product there in the course of the 1990s. In Ukraine, they were, wor- they were worst. This is one of the worst advertisements for capitalism anywhere in the world. Capitalism in Ukraine in the 1990s, was a disaster. And things haven't got fundamentally better since. So that's the general context in which the last couple of decades of Ukrainian history have been worked out. Hmm. Extreme poverty, recurrent depression, political crisis. Yeah. Well, that gets into, I guess, the kind of next kind of question, um, because I think you've given kind of like a very good kind of summary, a a good kind of context for you know, Ukraine and, um, and, and capitalism. And I guess one of the, pop, the things I guess we want to kind of move into, and I guess is towards the end of 2013, this is probably has the most significance in terms of contextualizing today's events today. But the end of 2013 saw the development of the maiden uprising, which was sparked by the Ukraine's government, Ukraine's government sudden decision to not sign the European Union Ukraine Association Agreement. And of course, instead choosing closer ties to Russia and the Euro-Asian Economic Union. And I guess, what can you tell us about this movement? And I guess, what was the implications that it created for Ukraine, especially in terms of its relationship to the world kind of capitalist um, system, because which obviously has a lot of significance. Well, the Ukraine didn't uh, rise off a bare table. Um, it was a reflection of the dysfunction of the Ukrainian state under the economic system, and the uh, severe poverty of the bulk of the population. Um, and, of course, it had international ramifications as well. Ukraine remained closely integrated with Russia economically. This had all been a single economic expanse earlier. The border in Soviet times had simply been something administrative, and uh, firms on either side of that that border interchanged um, products freely. Uh, You put that border there, you introduced customs, boundaries, and so on. The whole thing became... Um, much more, much more difficult, and we also have to understand the structure of uh, Ukraine's economy and of of ownership. That process of privatisation didn't um, unravel to, the, or it didn't proceed to the uh, to the advantage of the bulk of the population. Assets were seized pretty much by those who already controlled them. The Directors of Soviet-era factories became their new owners under privatisation. You had the rise of what's been described as an oligarchy, that is, ruled by a few, ruled by um, the people who had control of industrial resources, um, who formed into various regional blocks particularly. And the whole uh, 
temper of uh, Ukrainian politics consisted of this contest between various oligarchic blocs centred in various cities and regions and and industries, none of them able to gain a, a decisive leg up over others. Um, and so the whole political situa- situation very unstable. One of the ironies is that those years before the Maidan uprising of uh, early 2014 were some of the more prosperous ones since um, since the end of the Soviet Union. There'd been a significant recovery, though the place was still much poorer than it had been in Soviet times. Um, but nevertheless, there was uh, a general sense of malaise and popular indignation at the extraordinary level of uh, of corruption within society and at the inequality, because you had people who were outright billionaires at the same time as the bulk of the population were not even getting by. Um, now, as I said, a great deal of uh, disunity among that ruling elite and discontent with, uh, on the part of particular oligarchs with the rule from uh, 2010 of Viktor Yanukovych, who was one of the most corrupt of all the oligarchs, and a sense that Yanukovych was using his power to aggregate a great deal of power and, and privilege of wealth in his hands and those of his family and hangers-on. Now, Yanukovych was from the east, from the industrial region of Donetsk, and uh, one of the peculiarities of uh, the Russian East was that its its economic ties uh, to Russia were particularly close. But at the same time, uh, the traditional view of Yanukovych, pro-Russian, is not strictly correct. Uh, all Ukrainian oligarchs... Uh, were more or less pro-Russian in the sense that that they traded extensively with with Russia. Many of them, not just Yanukovych, but also Poroshenko, his uh, his successor, had substantial financial interests in Russia. So um, you have this complex um, in which Russian ties are an element, the uh, uh, oligarchic nature of Ukrainian society was a very important issue as well. And finally, there's the issue of Ukrainian nationalism. Now, there was a a long-standing tradition, um, uh, particularly in the west of the country, that the source of Ukraine's problems was the presence of Russians, the so-called oppression by Russians, um, the persistence of pro-Russian ties and traditions. It cuts both ways because Ukraine's prosperity, such as it was, depended very much on trading relations with Russia and good political relations with Russia. Um, But you had this um, this strain of of, uh, Ukrainian nationalism that was vehemently anti-Russian and the indignation against Yanukovych, who was associated with the uh, Russian speakers and had these these ties to Russia. Um, the impact of, of this was that Ukrainian nationalism began to line up against Yanukovych very strongly. And by the time that you had oligarchs who were 
um, antagonistic to Yanukovych, fearful of his designs on the economy, sensing that he was getting too big for his boots and seizing too much of the loot. You had this combination of oligarchic factors of, uh, of Ukrainian, right-wing Ukrainian nationalism, anti-Russian Ukrainian nationalism, uh, coming to bear on the situation. Now, at the same time, the population as a whole weren't particularly antagonistic to Russia at all. There was the question of uh, entry to the European Union, of closer ties to Europe. Yanukovych was on side with that. He was actively involved in negotiating an association agreement with the um, European Union that was intended to uh, cut tariff barriers and expedite trade with, with the West. But at the same time, the economic situation was starting to get threatening. Uh, debts were mounting, and Yanukovych understood that he was in trouble. He was applying for um, international monetary fund loans. And the IMF and uh, Western powers proposed a deal under which Ukraine would receive $17 billion in new credits, but this would be accompanied by extremely stringent um, extremely stringent uh, austerity measures that would involve, for example, cuts to the wages of public servants, um, freeze on the miserable minimum wage, and also um, as much as a tripling of the prices of gas. And natural gas, which came mainly from Russia, was a very important commodity in, in Ukraine, it fired up the furnaces, it warmed the population in the severe winters, and if you tripled the population, the, uh, the price of gas in Ukraine, then any government would have been in very serious trouble. Um, Yanukovych understood this, and while he was generally amenable to closer ties with the West, he balked at this deal, which would have driven him out of office and would have made him, would have made him extremely unpopular. At the same time, um, Putin in Russia, wanting to keep Ukraine um, friendly to Russia, wanting to maintain those, those relations, uh, wary of closer ties between Ukraine and the West, particularly as regarded uh, NATO, the Western Military Alliance, uh, decided to come back at this with a counteroffer that involved $15 billion in uh, Russian credits and also a one-third discount on gas prices paid by Ukraine. This would have saved Yanukovych's bacon pretty much. But at the same time, it represented um, closer ties um, or maintenance of already existing close ties with Russia. And Ukrainian nationalists, by and large, were extremely hostile to it. Also, by this stage, other powerful oligarchs um, had decided to throw in their lot with the West against Yanukovych. So you had this combination of Russian nationalists 
of uh, Ukrainian nationalists plus various powerful oligarchs working on public opinion. Now, when I say working on public opinion, it was mainly the middle layers of the population in Ukraine. This wasn't a working class thing at all. It wasn't a broadly popular one. The working class in Ukraine were absolutely cynical about populations, about politicians of all stripes. They weren't going to support Yanukovych. They weren't going to support his opponents. The, uh, the president was a rogue and a thief, but how, how would any of the others be any better? Mm. Um, that's the background to the Maidan revolution in early 2014 in Ukraine. Uh, as we know, this ended with Yanukovych being thrown out uh, and this right-wing nationalist pro-European strain in, uh, in Ukraine and the oligarchs who were associated with it uh, coming to power. Mm. Following from that, what was the... Can you tell us about the some of the tensions that developed between the Russian government and Ukraine following the ouster of Yanukovych and... How do they inform? How do you think they inform what's going on today with the whole issue with the Russian invasion and such? Well, the critical thing for Russia wasn't so much the European Union. They were used to dealing with the European Union, and they weren't especially hostile to Ukraine having closer ties. Uh, even eventual European Union membership—that's something that uh, the Russians could have could have borne. Um, the critical thing was military. It was NATO. Now, NATO is a military alliance, and we have to remember that over the past 30-odd years, um, the Russians had had many, uh, much reason to expect that NATO was strongly hostile to Russia and had definite expansionist ambitions. Um, at the end of the Soviet period... The U.S. had given uh, Gorbachev what appeared to be an ironclad guarantee, at least verbally, that NATO would not expand to the uh, to the east if uh, the wall came down, if uh, Germany became reunited. That uh, undertaking was was breached as early as 1994, 1997, with uh, the accession of. Uh, Poland and several other countries uh, to NATO. The, um, the Russians gritted their teeth and they didn't like it, but the process was continuing. Um, in, the, in the next century, it came to uh, involve countries like Bulgaria, Romania, uh, even the Baltic states. That meant that NATO was now only a couple of hundred kilometres from St. Petersburg, um, Russia's second greatest city, um, and why wouldn't um, why wouldn't NATO want to expand further? Now, another reason why the Russians were discontented with the association agreement that um, uh, Ukraine was proposing to sign with um, with the European Union was that it involved a military and strategic and, uh, um, component. There was the understanding that uh, NATO's that uh, NATO's security ties with 
Ukraine would be enhanced. So the Russians, extremely suspicious there, um, very conscious that Ukraine abutted right on the central regions, uh, regions of European Russia. Uh, it was like a knife in their belly. If that went with NATO, then uh, their whole defensive capability, which was predicated on having buffer states between them and Western forces, uh, would, have, would have fallen apart. And uh, it's a fact that in many ways, Ukraine, after the Maidan, became a de facto member of, of NATO in all respects except the undertaking that NATO members had that if they were attacked, all of NATO would come to their defence. It's a fact, for example, that NATO powers took part in extended large-scale military manoeuvres on Ukrainian territory. You can't get much of a greater threat to central Russia and to, to Russian security in general than that. So the Russians were extremely unhappy with those developments. Um, so that's the basis of the Russians' absolutely intent on stopping uh, Ukraine from, jo from joining NATO, uh, exerting all kinds of pressures and uh, veiled or not even veiled anymore threats against, against Ukraine. That's at the same time as trade between Ukraine and Russia declined heavily. Russia remained, uh, throughout most of this period, uh, Ukraine's largest single trading partner, but it was nowhere near as pronounced as it was. And that's another point on the economy, that the, the, the consequences of cutting off those trade and those commercial ties with Russia were extremely deleterious for Ukraine. And Ukraine, after the Maidan, in fact, went into severe and acute economic depression that lasted throughout 2014 and 2015. So Ukraine, the, uh, uh, the Maidan, closer association with Europe, didn't redound to the advantage economically of the Ukrainians. It had the opposite effect of thrusting them still further into depression. Hmm. And um, so, so Renfrey, we're, we're, it's around 7.54, and so we're running a bit um, low on time, so we're probably not going to be able to go into some of the other questions we were kind of interesting in asking, but um, we do have some time to for kind of some some any sort, some final kind of comments covering, you know, some of the different things that I guess you've been saying, because I think you have, you have given a, like a very kind of good kind of history, you know, covering from, you know, the, the formation of uh, Ukraine as a, as a country following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but then going into the kind of implications of uh, the 2014 um, Maiden, Maiden uh, uprising. And I think it is, that is a kind of important kind of history because I guess one of the things about the mainstream kind of media, the corporate kind of, the capitalist sort of media's sort of take on these events is they're essentially wanting to selectively ignore all this kind of history, almost sort of like acting like there's no explanation for why Russia is invading Ukraine. Though, on the other hand, that said, I don't think we want to use this kind of context to basically say that, you know, this is a justification for 
for the invasion, but it is it provides a certain context that is obviously not afforded to uh, when um, when 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 it's a country that is opposed to the West um, gets any sort of um, gets any sort of fair uh, any sort of cover any sort of balanced kind of reporting. So yeah, I guess yeah, if you um, maybe to kind of conclude, like for for the next like if you kind of had some final comments to throw in, and maybe potentially we might have you on our program again to discuss some of the other sort of more contemporary events, including some of the significance of uh, Roland Demir's, uh Zelensky's electoral wing in 2019, and I guess, you know, maybe addressing some of the myths around Ukraine. But, yeah, obviously any sort of final comments in relation to sort of what you've sort of been speaking about um, from um, for this interview. Well, Ukraine has been presented in the last few weeks as some kind of paragon, paragon of liberal democracy. It's not. It remains very much under the thumb of its super-rich. The political system, um, oligarchic parties based on particular aggregations of wealth, the population as a whole, utterly cynical. Politicians of every stripe profoundly, uh, profoundly discredited and mistrusted. The current president, Zelensky, was an actor who uh, managed to talk his way into power on the basis of, basis that he wasn't a politician, he didn't have those old links, he hadn't been ingrained into the system of corruption. But on the other hand, he was worth tens of millions of dollars and he did have a close working relationship with one of the very worst of the oligarchs. Uh, in power, he made no essential move to attack the oligarchic political system and he very quickly lost popularity in recent times. Um, his approval had slipped to just 24%. So let's not pretend that Ukraine is some sort of capitalist democracy. It's not. It's a typical capitalist oligarchy ruled by the super-rich in which the working people, the over overwhelming majority, get an extremely raw deal. And it remains the poorest country in Europe. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Renfrey, um, for being our program. This has, yeah, been a very useful and an important discussion, especially as, you know, especially as many are following, um, the events in, um, Ukraine kind of right now. So, yeah, thank you very much, Renfrey. And, um, yeah, um, I think you've given us a very kind of insightful, um, history on, on all this. It's been a pleasure. See ya. Hope to have you back soon. All right. Um, so you, um, we were just, um, speaking to Renfrey, um, Clark from, um, who is a Russian, who is a historian who has, who has previously been the Green Left correspondent in Moscow through the 1990s and has written intensively on Ukraine's economy and politics. And so, yeah, we just had him in for a discussion on, on the history of Ukraine. And so, yeah. Right now, we'll go play um, a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. 
get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. All right, welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And we're just going to move on to the activist calendar. All right. Take it away. So, yeah, it's time for the Green Left kind of activist calendar. So we're going to be um, giving going through some listings of some upcoming political events, rallies and protests. Um, basically, for anyone who wants to get involved in, you know, in the struggle for a better world, these are some of the events that... You know, many um, that groups on the left end of um, and of the grassroots are organising. So maybe to get them started, the first kind of ac- um, rally I want to sort of um, make a note of is there's going to be a rally, um, peace in Ukraine, um, no to um, no, um, Russia out, NATO out, and it's going to be happening. It's 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 a, a coalition uh, a coalition of um, um, a- anti-war groups and. And others have called this protest for on Saturday, 12th of March tomorrow, and it's going to be happening at 12 p.m. at the State Library. I think this will be an important rally to get along to because, as we've sort of been speaking about on the program, it's quite clear that the the that there is going to be a need to build an anti-war movement. And while yeah, while it's true that most of the world has or well, I, most of the, the liberal capitalist world has condemned Russia, um, for its invasion. Um, they, they're not putting forward an anti-war solution to the conflict. They're actually putting forward a solution that involves more militarism and more escalates conflict. And I think as, I think this protest will be important because it will be able to show that we reject that narrative and actually we demand actually peace. And then on Saturday, March the 12th, there's going to be um, the Beyond Coal um, Melbourne Assembly, which is going to be happening from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30, um, I think 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Community Room at the Edinburgh Gardens in Brunswick Street, North Fitzroy. On Tuesday, March the 15th, there's going to be an info night, Fighting for Climate and Environmental Justice in 2022, and that's going to be happening at 6 p.m. at the Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. And then on Wednesday, March the 16th, there's going to be a book launch, The Party, by Stuart McIntyre at 5.30pm at the Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. And then on Saturday, March the 19th, there's going to be a rally, Fight for Public Health and Workplace Safety, and that's going to be happening at 12 noon at the State Library, Swanson Street. And then on Friday, March the 25th um, to Monday, March the 28th, there's going to be the Global Strike for Client, People Not Profit, at the Old Treasury Building in Spring Street in the city. And then um, that's um, just about that. I don't have the full details on on necessarily how the climate strike is going to part A, but I'm pretty sure on Friday, March the 25th, there is going to the Global Climate Strike will be having a big rally, a, a, rally, a proper kind of rally, and the other three days are going to be sort of other sort of um, areas, um, like maybe other actions or other protests, or maybe a potentially some action that they're advising their supporters kind of to take. And then on April, um, Sunday, April the 10th, um, there's going to be a rally, um, Palm Sunday, Walk for Justice for Refugees, um, at 2pm at the State Library. And 
Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's, well, actually, there's one other event that just, um, I saw, I just saw on, actually, up here on social media. I'm just going to get the details, um, for it. But it is, um, I'm just getting the details for it now. It's going to be happening. In the meantime, while, while you're looking up the details, yeah. yep. I might just remind everybody or let everybody know that if you want to get more details, keep updated with these events and stuff, you can go to greenlife.org.au slash events. By default, it'll just tell you the events that are on that particular day, but you can change the filters and you can subscribe to the activist newsletter so that you get updates about these sort of things. And you can find maybe stuff that we might not mention because it's more local to you, or you can find further details about some of the events that we just mentioned in passing on this activist calendar. Hmm. Now, just to tell you, um, the, I found the protest. So um, the, the Islamic Council and... Um, Stand for Uyghurs um, Australia are going to be organising a, a protest, um, Stand for Uyghurs Australia, which is speaking out against the oppression of the Uyghurs in um, East Turkestan. Um, and that's going to be happening on the 20th of March at 2pm at the State Library in Melbourne. Um, but of course, it is going to be a national day of action. So I think the idea is there will be different protests across the kind of different cities. So yeah, that I think will be uh, an important kind of protest to support. And in fact, we'll probably try and get an interview with um, one of the organisers of this rally at some point for one of our future programs. Mm. All right. Well, might be time. We'll probably yes. time to... Yeah, I'll get, <laughs> get to A. Yeah. So thank you for the activist calendar, Jacob. Um, always interesting stuff going on that I haven't heard about before. And um, we have an interview upcoming in about five minutes or so with uh, Shirley from IPAN, the International uh, Peace Advocacy Network, uh, about an upcoming anti-war protest and that sort of thing. So I'll just go to a song and then we'll come back with that interview. So uh, stay tuned. The song we're going to listen to is Stove Lighter by Camp Cope.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our second and final guest for the program, um, we're very happy to have Shirley Winton with us. Um, Shirley Winton is part of the Independent and Peaceful um, Australia Network, IPAN. And, um, yeah, we have her on this morning to kind of talk about um, this rally that's actually going to be organised kind of tomorrow. So um, being called by IPAN and various other different peace organisations and left-wing organisations. Uh, opposing the war in uh, in Ukraine. Um, good morning, Shirley. Good morning. Good morning to you. So, Shirley, maybe to kind of start off, I was going, I was interested because from hearing from you, I guess as a, I guess a representative of IPAN, I guess I want to kind of just hear a bit of a general sort of. Uh, overview, I guess, of IPAN's sort of response uh, to this, um, to the recent Russia, um, Russian invasion in Ukraine, and yeah, just in terms of kind of IPAN's sort of general position on this. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, look, IPAN, as people you might probably know, and others, that IPAN is um, is a national uh, network of over I don't know forty five organisations and individuals uh, as well. Um, and we're promoting or advancing campaigning for an independent and peaceful foreign policy. And so our position on um, on the situation in Ukraine is that, um, generally speaking, that countries, all countries have the right to self-determination without interference from, um, from big powers, from other powers. And that's politically, economically and militarily. And that we respect the sovereignty of countries and people. And the situation in Ukraine is obviously the result, the war in uh, Ukraine is the result of uh, big power rivalries, conflict, and that is on the one side US-NATO alliance, uh, which has its own economic interests in Europe, uh, but also globally, um, and um, have been uh, expanding quite extensively in the last 30 years. Um, towards um, um, capturing most of the former Soviet republics under, you know, they're under the US NATO influence. And on the other side is the, is, is, is there, is Russia, another big power who, whose former, um, um, I guess you could say control of, or, um, 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 Position in regard to the former Soviet republics, that's been lost. Um, so, and they want to retain that. But underpinning all that is is the conflict, the contention between the superpowers, between these two superpowers for control of um, natural resources, uh, control of um, markets, and also labour. So, um, in I guess I would um, explain it in terms. I'll give it a term imperialist contention that it's um, it's a conflict uh, between imperialist powers and a war between imperialist powers. So we are completely opposed to um, to Russian um, military invasion of Ukraine. Whilst we acknowledge that um, that this has been precipitated uh, by the provocations and by the expansion of US NATO over the last 30 years, which for you know decades had intentions to, to, to control that area, that whilst we're opposed to, 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 um, to Russian um, military invasion, and we understand the reason for it, it is not an excuse. So it can't be justified. 
Mm. And so um, we're calling, what we're saying is that our, I guess our calls, our demand is for an immediate ceasefire and withdrawal of Australian, uh, sorry, <laughs> withdrawal of Russian troops um, and begin peace negotiations um, and for US NATO to end expansion and the provocation. Mm. Um, so we're calling on the end of hostilities by Ukrainian government against the people of Donbass, uh, which, you know, for the last 10 or so years, um, the people of Donbass have been put under in immense um, uh, per- pros- persecution, um, by the, particularly by the neo-Nazis who um, have have been given a lot of support and have actually um, have grown substantially also in the last um, probably well in the last 20 years with um, with the support and encouragement uh, from particularly the US. That's kind of an outline of what IPAN's position is. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. And I guess yeah, it gives a good kind of overview, I guess, of where IPAN is coming from in terms of in terms of their position. Uh, because yes, IPAN is involved in helping organise, I guess, this rally that's going to be happening tomorrow, which um, is not not just IPAN is involved, but various different no. groups are um, are involved in in it. And I guess. Um, Shirley, I wanted to kind of hear what can you, I guess, tell us about the rally that's going to be happening um, tomorrow and, I guess, why, I guess, its its importance in terms of rebuilding, I guess, the anti-kind of war movement. Yeah. So the rally is tomorrow. That's Saturday the 12th uh, at 12 o'clock um, outside the library, the Victorian State Library in Swanson Street. Um, we've got two keynote speakers um, and that's um, Jeff Sparrows. People probably know Jeff. Uh, he's a, a journalist and a writer. Um, and also John Lander. John Lander is a, a retired former diplomat um, who, um, who who was an ambassador in uh, Australian ambassador in Iran uh, during the the uh, Iraq Iran war. Uh, he's also been a de- diplomat in various other countries, including China, in the early 1970s. And he's got a, a, a you know, a really very good insight into the, um, in, into, into the machinations um, that are, you know, happening in in um, in Ukraine over Ukraine, but also where it fits in globally in the global contention that is developing. And it's not just. Um, you know, it, we can't we can't really view um, the Ukraine war, the conflict in Ukraine, in isolation from from, for instance, the situation in Asia Pacific in our region, where there's growing tensions between the U.S. and and China, um, that could also lead to um, to war, and, and and Ukraine is part of all that you know alignment of big powers. Um, competing for natural resources, um, for markets and, and labour. So the rally tomorrow will, they'll be the two main speakers, then there will be, um, an open mic. So, um, members of different organisations will have an opportunity to put in, to put their position, explanation, between, you know, between three to five minutes each. Um, we'll, we'll take a, a photo of, uh, of the group. There'll be a photo. Uh, group photo with banners. So the theme of the the theme of the rally is Russia out, US uh, sorry NATO out. So it's taking a position of um, of targeting both 
the, the, the Russian invasion and also the, the NATO expansion, which has basically led um, to, to, this, um, to this conflict. So um, we're also calling on the solidarity with the people of Ukraine and, and with people of Russia. There's a growing anti-war movement in, in Russia in very difficult circumstances as well, as people may imagine. We're saying that Ukraine is a the war in Ukraine is a proxy war, but it's a it's a war between two superpowers that, as I've mentioned before, and Ukraine is being used as a battleground um, in this competing um, superpower con, uh, contentions. Um, so that's that'll be the theme of it. There's uh, there's about ten different organisations that are involved in organising and will be at, at the rally as well. We hope to build, continue building, that this will be part of building the anti-war movement um, in Australia and obviously in Melbourne more specifically, um, which is really absolutely necessary in this time of enormous global tensions that are taking place. And Ukraine is just, is just a kind of a spark. Um, in our own region, we need to build a very strong anti-war movement um, because the Australian government has completely... Um, um, completely throw, uh, threw itself behind, as, and always has, um, be, behind the US um, in the preparations for war with China. So AUKUS, that's the Australia-UK-US um, pact, military pact, this is a, 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 I guess you could say it's a kind of a replica or it's an, a mirror image of NATO being set up in our region as well, again, in preparation for war with China. Um, so um, the, the necessity of building uh, this um, <laughs> the anti-war movement in Australia can't be over-exaggerated, um, and it is urgent. Mm. And um, and uh, AUKUS also provides it, provides us with that specific and concrete um, um, focus um, uh, attention on which to build the the anti-war movement. I mean, AUKUS is spending more than 120 billion on submarines and we can all, there's nothing more clearer, the contradiction is no more sharper than 120 billion on nuclear submarines, um, which are not for defence of Australia, but for offensive part of US strategy, military strategy in the region. And how much is 50 billion, 50 billion of that could be spent on providing hundreds of schools, building hundreds of schools, hospitals, um, increasing teachers in classrooms and, you know, the list goes on. Uh, so, um, so yeah, yeah. there's well, a real urgency and, and we hope that, that the rally today, uh, tomorrow, will be part of building off that broad united movement that unites, you know, unites different organisations and different people from, you know, different perspectives, but we have one common aim and uh, a commonality that unites us, and that is the opposition to war, particularly wars of aggression. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Shirley. Um, usually I sort of ask um, my guests to sort of make any kind of final comments, um, but I thought that your comment there is kind of like a good way to kind of conclude this kind of interview. Um, yeah, I think it is. this rally is going to be, I guess, very kind of important. And, um, yeah, it's going to be happening at 12 p.m. tomorrow at the State Library. And, yeah, we're running. Um, and, yeah, I'd like to thank you, um, thank you again, Shirley, for being on our program. Oh, thank you, Jacob, for uh, publicising the rally. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks bye. very much. Bye. Bye.
All right. Um, you were just speaking to Shirley Winton from the Independent and Peaceful um, Action Network, IPAN, and um, we'll just play um, a quick announcement, and then maybe we might conclude with a bit of a... Yeah, we might just conclude with a few kind of minutes of kind of commentary, kind of tying up the rest of the day. You're listening to Green Left Radio. The Milky Way looks good in the night sky. The stars open a short from my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. Oh, I see what's new. All right, uh, welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And um, we're just going to have a brief discussion for the next couple minutes because um, we're coming toward the end of our program. Uh, Jacob, did you want to lead off on that? Yeah, so to kind of start off, um, this is drawing, I guess, on an article that you can actually read online on greenleft.org.au um, t- um, titled How About Expropriating All the Oligarchs? And I guess... The kind of um, the headline there kind of actually summarizes a bit of yeah. um, a number of the kind of points I guess that we want to make because one of the more interesting kind of things now just one thing to note um, given you know given the discussion actually we did have with Renfrey and um, with Renfrey Clark there is actually there is a certain appropriateness by which Russian and Ukraine capitalists are referred to as oligarchs because basically it is a historically contextualized kind of term you know that refers to the fact that there was a section of, you know, a section of capitalists that essentially uh, got, you know, stole a lot of public kind of mm. property uh, and inherited massive numbers of, of wealth following the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the planned economy. So, of course, and then as a result, they have a certain disproportionate influence over the political systems of those countries, i.e. both um, Ukraine and Russia. So that's a particular context. Now, now you can, yeah, going on that, I don't think it necessarily justifies how most of the liberal capitalist media are talking about oligarchs. So essentially, yeah. it's almost being turned into this whole thing of, well, basically, we um, we hate these Russian oligarchs, and you know, we have to take action against them because they're corrupt and, and so on. But it's actually not just Russian oligarchs or Ukrainian oligarchs that are corrupt and anti-democratic. It's actually all, I think, all oligarchs, i.e. all capitalists, are actually comparable in, in the destruction and exploitation of the world. They're just some that are probably better at... Um, at um, giving a better um, de- um, image of democratic uh, democratic Rainier than um, some of these Russian oligarchs. But I think, mm. you know, the question that Peter Boyle kind of raises is, yeah, why don't we expropriate all, uh, all oligarchs? Why is it that we let, allow someone like Jeff Bezos to, you know, essentially spend million, billions of dollars just to go into, into space, like, while yeah. making massive profits off the exploitation of, of workers. Yeah, or more relevant, no offense, <laughs> slightly more relevant to the article is that one of the points that uh, Peter Boyle makes is that they introduced this bill around uh, Europe and the United States, which was that they were talking about appropriating, like particularly the yachts uh, is mentioned here, appropriating the yachts of these Russian oligarchs and selling them and then sending the those the the proceeds um to ukraine for aid and 
There was a story a little while ago, people might have forgotten it because a lot of stuff has happened since then, of there being a discussion of uh, possibly deconstructing a heritage bridge in the Netherlands so that Jeff Bezos's new absolutely ridiculous super yacht could sail through. And you see that sort of thing. And while, as Jacob said, and it is a good point, there is a particular historical context to the use of the term oligarch in Russia and Ukraine. You can see these sorts of things like Jeff Bezos's absolutely absurd super yacht or sending himself to space in a penis-shaped rocket for fun. There's this ab- absolute absurdity to our Western billionaires and our Western kind of oligarchs and whatever that you even – they're much richer than the Russian and Ukrainian ones. And that's one of the things I think that obfuscates the, the kind of – the quote-unquote oligarchs in the the West and – um, a lot of Europe and the US and, the, and Australia is that the you have the lobbies systems, you have these kind of, you have the, the idea of interests and lobbies. So, you know, in the US, you have the oil lobby and the war lobby, and you have these kind of little conglomerates of, um, it, you know, related business people and related businesses who put money into politics rather than just these kind of very discernible individuals that you get in um, places like Ukraine and Russia and in other places in the world, of course. And that sort of obfuscates that we do have a similar problem of this kind of massive amount of wealth in our political system. And if we're talking about, you know, quote-unquote stealing, expropriating the wealth of these Russian oligarchs just because they're doing something we don't like, and we don't like it for good reasons, to be clear, but why not talk about the the kind of similar problems that we have in on our side of the world, you know, on our side of the Iron Curtain, so to speak. And why not talk about expropriating the wealth of all of these billionaires who similarly steal wealth from the workers, who similarly hoard it to themselves and don't really help economies because they all hide their money in ways that can't get taxed and all of that sort of stuff. Like, why not talk about these things? Hmm. Well, um, first, um, I think we're running out of time now, mm. but I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. And, um, yeah, stay tuned for, I think it's um, Earth Matters rerun yeah. that's going to be playing following this. And, yeah, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. And, yeah, all the best for the struggle for a better world. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855am. See ya. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from this farmers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back, reds underneath your